Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We have, of course, been making our way through this gospel, but it seems like it's been a few weeks since the last time we were in it. Um, So just know uh, that's where we are picking off is where we left off. We ended last time in the gospel of John with verse 9. And uh, so this morning we are going to be in verses 10 to 13. So I'm going to read... Gospel of John, and what I'm going to do, we'll only have verses 10 to 13 to show up there, but just so that we can have the whole context, I'm going to actually read beginning at verse 1 and then down to verse 13, but our text this morning will be verses 10 to 13. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Would you pray with me? Father, Your works are full of glory. Your Son, who dwelled with You from all eternity, Your Son through whom all things were made, and Your Son who has authority over all things entered into our existence became a man, a human being with flesh just like us, so that He might die on our behalf to redeem us from our sin, bring us back to You, and make us children of God. Father, this is grace upon grace. Love that is completely undeserved because from 
the womb, Lord, we have gone astray. We have lived every day of our lives in rebellion against You. Wanting nothing to do with You. Not honoring You. Not praising You. Not desiring to worship You because we have been so consumed with our own glory. Father, we deserve nothing more than everlasting judgment. And nevertheless, because of the mercy that is within You, You have done a miraculous work in causing Your people to be born again, giving them new hearts in the very Spirit of God that was upon Christ Himself so that our affections might be made new and our love for You might be true. Father, I pray that this morning the glorious work that You have done on our behalf in causing us to be born as new creatures might become so evident that our hearts can only lift up praise. And I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, it's been a few weeks since we were in the Gospel of John, so I think it's worth reminding ourselves of what we have heard and gone through so far. The first 18 verses of this Gospel are an introduction to what is going to come in the rest of the chapters. Truths that are set before us here are illustrated and elaborated on in the coming chapters. And everything that we find in this Gospel, we are told, serves the larger purpose of helping us to believe. To come to believe in a saving way that Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth is the promised Christ. And that even more, He is God Himself in the flesh. John, who is... The writer of this Gospel was a disciple of Jesus. He was with Him during His earthly ministry. He ate with Him. He fellowshiped with Him. He spoke with Him. He learned the truths about the Kingdom of God from His lips. But I think most importantly, I think what John wants us to really understand is that John himself was an eyewitness to both the crucifixion of Jesus and His resurrection. He saw with his own eyes his very teacher, his very Lord, who he had walked with for a few years, who he had seen work great miracles. He saw this Lord crucified on a cross and three days later, raised from the dead. That's life-changing. He saw the claims that Jesus made about Himself, that He was the eternal Son of God, that He had the authority to forgive sins, that He controlled creation with the power of His words. He saw 
all of these claims validated when He rose from the dead. He came to understand that Jesus was not only the Christ that the Jews had long been waiting for, anticipating coming Messiah. He came to believe as well that Jesus was God in the flesh. That the Christ was not just a man, but was God in the flesh. And now, He wants us to believe. He wants His readers to believe what He knew Himself. What He knew by experience. So John's Gospel is a history. He is not interested in writing myths. He is not interested in telling fables and stories. He is interested in communicating real events that actually happened in his day and that he saw. But his history is not a disinterested history. It is not concerned, like many other histories are, with giving us bare facts, And allowing us to simply be the judge of those facts. John aims very intentionally to convince us. To convince us that Jesus is our God. Our Creator. Our King. And that if we will rightly recognize Him as such. If we will rightly recognize that He is a good and a saving God, and that His sovereign rule over creation and the plans He has been working out from the very beginning have come in the person of Jesus. If we will but believe these things, God will not only be our God, He will not only be our King, He will be our Savior. He will rescue us from the bondage that we are in with our sin. So he begins, John begins his gospel at the outset with laying these very truths before us. If our minds, as we come to this gospel, are darkened in any way by clouds of sin, he wants the Son of God to shine through immediately. The light of His glory, he wants to be seen Immediately. And so from the opening verses, we are met with the glory of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the one through whom and for whom all things were made. And Jesus Christ is the one in whom, John says, Everlasting, eternal life is to be found. When we come to verses 10 to 13, John's focus turns a little bit, shifts to how people respond to this truth. How people responded and how they even respond to this day. Clearly, we know from our own experience. And we know from what the Bible teaches us, we know from history itself that not all people accept this truth. Not all people hear the Gospel 
and hear the glory of Christ and submit themselves to it. And it's not, at the end of the day, because the evidence is insufficient. It's not because John was unclear. It's not because the Gospels are unclear. It's not because the evidence is unclear. Jesus in His own day didn't do His ministry in secret. He didn't preach in private. He made before everyone's eyes so that they could see the lame to walk. Not the lame who no one knew. The very lame. The people who are crippled. Whom the villages and the cities knew. They had grown up. They lived in the cities. They were beggars. People knew this lame man has been lame for many years. And we've seen him. And Jesus intentionally, before everyone's eyes, would heal them. Not with some magical incantation. Not with some potion. Not with some pagan prayer. But by simply the power of His Word. Get up! Walk! And the lame would walk. He did the very same thing before people's eyes in raising people from the dead. You think of Lazarus, for example, who we will come to learn more about as we continue in the Gospel of John. Lazarus was a real man. Everyone knew who Lazarus was. So when Lazarus died, there was a funeral. There was mourning. There was a preparation for His very burial. And people wept over His death. And He wasn't dead for a day. He wasn't dead for two days. He was dead for several days. He was dead as dead can be. He was buried in a tomb. And what does Jesus do? So that everyone can see that God is working through Him and that His claims to be the Son of God and to be working by the very Spirit of God will be vindicated. He said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out! And the dead were made to live. Jesus' ministry was not in secret. It was very evident for all to see. The evidence in John's day was sufficient to prove that Jesus was who He said He was. Yet what we find is that the Jews largely would not accept it. They would not accept His claims. Despite seeing everything they saw, they refused to accept it. And the reason they wouldn't accept it is the same reason many do not accept Christ as the Son of God to this very day. It's ultimately, friends, not on the basis of the insufficiency of the evidence, but on the basis of hearts that love darkness more than light. Hearts that love sin, that love self-righteousness, that love greed, that love lust. Hearts that love sin more than God is the reason why people do not come. John wants us to think 
about the two responses to Christ. Because ultimately, in His Gospel, He's aiming for us to have one and not the other. He wants us to respond rightly and to see the absurdity of not responding rightly to this man, this God-man, Jesus. And so in verses 10-13, to after presenting us with the glory of Christ, He brings up the two different responses to this glory. Two different responses that occurred in Jesus' earthly ministry and two different responses that still to this very day occur. Rejection or reception. One or the other. You have to make one or the other. There's no middle ground. You either reject or you receive it. And so what I want to do this morning is to look at each of these responses and explore the causes of each. And then I want to just close with a couple of points of application. In verses 10 to 11, we come across the first response to Christ. Rejection. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. The world here is distinguished from the object of verse 11, His own. You have, the, you have the world in verse 10. You have His own in verse 11. So the world probably refers here to the largely Gentile pagan world. The world like, like you and me. We are considered Gentiles. We are the other nations. And His own refers to the Jews. And so John says the world didn't know Him. It was ignorant of Him. Probably a a great case in point is Pontius Pilate. He was a, a Roman governor. He was not a Jew. He was part of the world. He was a Gentile pagan. And yet, Jesus, the Son of God, appears before Him. He has no clue who He is. He's heard, right? This is a man claiming to be the king of the Jews. I mean, he's heard all of these things. He he sees that there's lots of conflict being developed among these Jews, but he just this is a Jewish problem. I have no clue what this what this is about. And so he's got no problem with eventually at the end of the day sending Christ to be crucified. He's ignorant. That's how the world was. Ignorant. Didn't know him. But even more in verse 11, John says He came to His own. That is, the Jews. Christ came to His own. The Messiah came to His own. And His own people did not receive Him. The Jewish peoples, the Israelites' entire history was oriented around God's workings in and among them. He gave them prophets that announced the day of a coming Messiah. The prophets foretold that the Messiah would be rejected and despised and would die even to be a substitute for their sin. That was very clear for them to see and to read from their prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. They foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They foretold that the Messiah would not simply be an earthly king, but their eternal God Himself. Again, straight out of Isaiah. Isaiah is their great prophet. He says all kinds of things about the coming 
Messiah. And He does make it indeed clear that the promised Messiah will be the everlasting God. They had an entire religious system that was designed to give them constant reminders of what God had done for them in the past, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, rescuing them from constant oppression and enemies seeking to destroy them, as well as reminders of what God planned to do for them in the future. Everything had been prepared for them. The soil had been tilled so that when Christ finally came into the world, they would recognize Him and rejoice over His coming. The coming of the Christ was not intended to be some pure surprise. Yeah, they didn't know when the day would be. Just like we don't know when the day when He will return will be. But they knew what to look for. They had the prophets. They had their religious system painting pictures for them to see. John tells us that when He came, they didn't receive Him. All of the indications were there. All of the evidence was there. The prophecies were being fulfilled. And Jesus was ministering to them with a very clear demonstration of the power of God. And they rejected Him. And, they re- and the reason they rejected Him was the same reason men to this day continue to reject Him. It is ultimately not about the evidence being clear or unclear. It is about the moral inability of a person to respond rightly to God apart from the grace of God. I use that language very purposefully. The moral inability of the human heart to respond rightly. In other words, what Scripture teaches us is that a sinner, apart from the grace of God, working in that heart, a sinner literally cannot receive Christ unless some miraculous work of the Spirit of God intervenes. We are morally incapable of doing so. And the reason is not because there is some force that is blocking us from doing what we want to do. It is not as though human beings are just desiring to worship the true God. And there's just something that's stopping them. That's not what takes place. No one desires God. No one seeks the true God. It's not as though people truly want to submit themselves to God, but are being prohibited from doing so. What Scripture teaches us is that the depths of the human heart are so radically corrupted and in love with sin that it is unable to do that which is pleasing to God, which is to come to Him and to submit to Him. Jesus says, to illustrate, John 3, verse 3, to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, unless one is born from above, you can 
say it in both ways. Born again, born from above. Unless he has a supernatural rebirth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The power of God can be clearly displayed right before his eyes. He can be in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. He can see the Christ Himself raised from the dead, ascending into heaven, and He will not be able to see truly what is taking place. John 6, 44, Jesus says there, No one can come to Me. No one has the power to come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. He goes on to say, I will raise Him up on the last day. Later in that chapter, John 6, 64-65, He says, There are some of you who do not believe, speaking to larger group of disciples following Him. There are some of you who do not believe. Why don't they believe? This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, verse 7, puts it like this. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It doesn't have the ability to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, there's a moral incapability, an inability to do what is pleasing to God. Namely, come to the Savior. Let me illustrate a little bit differently the kind of inability that's being spoken of here. Consider, for example, a wedding. I think most of us here have been married or have been to a wedding before. What is a wedding? A wedding is a celebration. It is a time of joy, feasting, dancing, singing, whatever the case may be. It is not a mournful time. It is a time of pure joy. You have a bride and you have a bridegroom and they are abundantly happy. Because the two are about to be joined together in a holy covenant. The two are about to become one flesh. And so there's joy. Now if you were to go to that bride, or go to that bridegroom, and say, Bride, I command you, in this moment, be angry. She's not going to be able to do that. She's not going to have the ability to do that. The groom is not going to have the ability to do that. They are so constrained by joy and happiness and love for one another, they cannot become angry. There's literally an inability to do so. That's the kind of inability that sinners have apart from the grace of God. They are so in love, so entangled, with the very sins that entangle their hearts, that there is a literal inability to do that which is pleasing to God. 
Again, to use John's language, they love darkness. Love it. Enjoy it. It's, it's pleasing to them. And because of that, they refuse to come to the light. And so, in order for a person to depart from this and to do what he's actually unable to do, a miracle has to take place. A supernatural work of God has to take place. The natural response to Christ will always be rejection. Which is why, in order to receive Him, we need a supernatural miracle. And which is why we have to pray to God for those miracles to occur. And this is what we see happening in verses 12 to 13. Verses 12 to 13 is the opposite response to Christ. It is the response of belief, of receiving Him. John says there, but to all who did receive Him. And then he defines what he means by receiving Christ. How do you receive Christ who believed in His name? He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice here what John is eager to explain. We have two responses. Rejection and reception. Not believing and believing. And only one of these responses receives the privilege or the right of becoming a child of God of God, of becoming part of God's family. But notice what John says about how this takes place. How does one ultimately become a child of God? How does one break free from the bondage of sin that keeps one constrained to reject Christ? The answer is the supernatural work of God. Verse 13, these believers are described as those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John is removing with these words any hint that our believing in Christ had anything to do with anything inherent within us. He's stripping us of that notion. The reason a person believes in Christ has nothing to do, he says, with their natural birth or their ethnic background. It has nothing to do with the strength of their own wills or their own resolve, or their own determination. It's not by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It's not because I ultimately made a decision to follow Christ. We use that language often. What are we saying when we say that? When we say, I made a decision for Christ, all we're saying is that in this particular moment in my life, I became a believer. I followed Christ. Something happened, something new, I submitted to Christ, and I began to follow Him. But John, John is getting even deeper here. He's going beyond 
what we did ourselves. And he's, he's asking, what is the root cause of this? Why, in one moment, or in one week, or a month prior, you heard the Gospel, and you didn't respond. You didn't decide. You rejected. What happened in that moment? He's going beyond our human response to Jesus. And He's getting to the root of what happened. A Christian's belief, friends, is only fruit of something deeper. And John is digging down into the root and is saying, the reason you believed in Christ is because God gave you life. And that's what living people do. They love God. They rejoice in God. Dead people don't do that. Dead people follow the course of this world. Right? Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the prince of the power of the air. That's what dead people do. They follow sin. Living people follow Christ. And that's what God did to you if you believe. He gave you life. He caused you to be born into His family. You were born of God, John says. You were given a new principle of life within you. The Spirit of God entered into your heart and fundamentally remade it so that its natural response is no longer rejecting the very Son of God, but receiving Him. That's what happened in your conversion. Many conversions have taken place here in different ways. Some of you have perhaps been at some revival and you walked an aisle. Some of you were reading your Bibles and the glory of God was shining through and you became a follower of Christ. Some of you perhaps listened to a sermon online. Some of you heard a sermon at church. You heard the Gospel. You believed. You followed Christ. John is saying, this is what happened to you. God gave you life. He caused you to be born again. And you responded as a child of God would. In other words, the reason you came to love God, to use another description of John in his letter, 1 John, the reason you love God is because God first loved you. And He chose you. By His own will, He chose you to set His affections and His grace upon you in a very unique way. There's really no other way to put it. I am being very blunt here when I say He chose you. He chose you and gave you life by causing you to be born into His family. He does not do that with everyone. He leaves some in their sin. Fully justified. But for you who believe, He set His love upon you in a unique way. In terms of the root cause of your love for and trust in Christ, you had, at the end of the day, as much to do with it as you did your own natural birth. 
Now, I think it's worth pointing out here that John doesn't tell us this so that we might conclude that there is something more superior in us than is what, in, what is in others. That was the mistake that the Jewish contemporaries of Jesus made. They believed rightly, rightly, that they were the chosen people of God. Chosen. God had uniquely chosen them out of all of the peoples of the earth to reveal Himself to them and to bless them. Repeatedly, we find in their law, in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They were right in understanding that they were the chosen people of God. They later took this to mean that they were more righteous than others by virtue of that fact. When in fact, God had said in that very same law, Deuteronomy chapter 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess. He's not choosing you and bringing you out of slavery and giving you a possession and making you His treasured people because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. That was a reminder. You are not unlike the other nations. Their election as God's chosen people was not intended to be a platform to assert their own righteousness. It was intended to humble them and teach them the pure grace and love, unmerited favor of God towards them. Again in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7-8, to the Lord said to the Israelites, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. That is why He has chosen them. He loves them. In the same way, John teaches us that God has uniquely made us His children. Not so that we might boast in ourselves, but so that we might be humbled by the love and the grace of God. John says in verse 12, He gave the right to become children of God. A better way to to put it, He gave the privilege of becoming the children of God. It's a privilege. Not a reason for us to boast in ourselves, but a reason to rejoice and boast in God. God's grace towards us is a privilege, a joy, a gift to be received. So on that note, I want to give just two closing points of application specifically regarding our privilege as the children of God. Our privilege. How we should respond, how we should think about these truths. First, our privilege as children of God 
is meant to show us our true Christian hope. Our privilege as the Son of God shows us our true Christian hope. I think most often when people speak about being a child of God in the culture and even many times in the church, they're generally speaking about how God makes everyone. How everyone in some sense is an offspring of God because our Creator has created all people. They are children of God by being by virtue of being created by Him. But Scripture, Scripture uses the language of being children of God very differently from that. Being a child of God is meant to describe something very concrete. It communicates the reality of being an heir. Jesus has been installed as King over all things. And by faith in Him, we are adopted into His family. And therefore, we are made fellow heirs of the very kingdom that He rules over. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. This is how his argument goes in Galatians 4, verses 4-6. to But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Listen. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. Our privilege as God's children is the hope of an eternal inheritance. We know because our Father has told us so that in His good time, we will receive a gift, an inheritance beyond all comprehension. We know that part of our inheritance, because of what Paul says in Romans 8, will be bodies. New bodies that are raised from the dead never to die again. Friends, think of that. Bodies that do not die. It is difficult to even imagine a world where death is not present. The feeling of freedom that would be there the total absence of the fear of death, the disappearance of grief. It is so common and present with us now that that thought is hard to imagine. Yet God has shown us that this will be true for us. And He's given us evidence by raising His own Son from the dead. He, is, he has shown us this is what is to come by raising Christ from the dead. And this is a real hope of the children of God. Second, our privilege as children of God gives us a supernatural 
peace. By virtue of being uniquely the children of God, we are given a supernatural peace. I have thought much on this point lately. Peace. Why is it why is it that a Christian should not wallow in his or her sorrow or in self-pity? I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but why should it not? Why is it that God desires for us not to grieve as others do? We are to grieve, but not as others do. There's something fundamentally different with our grief. Much could be said, I think, in answer to this question, but part of the reason, I think, is because of the unique peace that the Lord gives to us through His Son. In John chapter 14, Jesus was telling His disciples that He was about to leave them. He was preparing them for his own death and eventual ascension into heaven. But he tells them that it is better for them that he go because when he goes, he's going to send to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 27, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He is telling them that whatever fears or anxieties or troubles that may arise in their hearts because of His imminent death should be overcome by the peace that He was giving to them. This is a peace that indeed has the power to overcome our troubles. Because it is a peace that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And it is a peace that brings to remembrance the sure promises of God. There's a lot of confusion over what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. It's very clear in John 14 that one of His works is to bring to remembrance the things that have been spoken by Christ. And so we are given the Spirit and a peace that brings to remembrance in the midst of our troubles the sure promises of God. Promises of a new heaven and a new earth. Promises of a resurrection. Promises of an everlasting kingdom. Promises of the manifest, clear, evident presence of God. Promises of the forgiveness of sin. Promises of victory over sin and Satan. Promises of unceasing joy and feasting and celebrating and worshiping forever. Sure promise. Why should a Christian deal with troubles differently than a non-Christian? 
Because a Christian enjoys the peace of knowing that one day, knowing, not guessing, knowing that one day, in God's good timing, in the good timing of our Father, every storm that assaults us will cease. Clouds will part. Trumpets will sound. The Lord will descend. And we all will sing. It is well. It is well with my soul. Sure promises of God. That. That's the privilege, the honor we have as the children of God. Would you pray with me?